Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 82. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me today, another guest in the studio, Kay Kelly. Hello, everybody. My name is Kay Kelly. I'm a junior acting major at the University of Michigan. And so today we're going to be talking about the value of improv or theatrical improvisation for those who don't know outside of the theater. But I'd like to start by talking about what you and I have learned in our experiences learning improv. So to start with you, what do you think some of the main principles are? What have your experiences been? And how has it been an adaptive process? Are there things that you think you had to fight instincts, for example, that were naturally there that you had to resist when first learning improv? Sure, yeah. I think one of the first things you have to pick up on is just being able to laugh at yourself. I wasn't very good at improv when we first (laughs) started out. When I was a freshman in high school, I auditioned for improv troupe and I bombed. I felt awful about it. Did not go well. And one of the biggest things I think I was struggling with was something I think most people struggle with when they first start out with improv is just trying too hard to be funny and not trusting that your natural instincts are going to be funny. And so you try to manufacture something that you think ahead of time in your head will be funny and it doesn't end up playing out the way you think it will with your partners and you're so much in your head that you're sort of blocking off what your natural ideas would be because you're afraid they're not funny enough or good enough or complicated enough when in reality I think a lot of the time the simplest choices end up being the funniest. So that was a big learning curve for me when I first started out was just understanding that if someone asks you a question and you say yes, you're moving on with the scene, then you're doing a good job. You're moving the scene forward and that's the most important thing. Being funny comes out of that. Another thing I think I really struggled with when I first started out with improv specifically is getting down on myself for feeling like I made a mistake really does not help the scene. It doesn't help you on stage. It doesn't help your life off stage. It ruins your whole day and you carry that weight of feeling like you did something wrong around with you for the whole day after that if you really hold on to it. And with improv, I feel like especially when you are on stage, if something goes wrong or if you personally feel like you did something that you tried and it wasn't funny, throw it away, move on, laugh at yourself just like everybody else is going to, and, you know, take your hits, take it with a grain of salt. That's a big skill that I think helps you just be a stronger person in your own life and just being able to roll with the punches. I think it's an important thing to learn as a person, let alone as an actor. And not only is it going to help you move forward with the scene, you know, if you're focusing on something you did wrong or something you didn't think landed right and you're still worried about that, but your scene is still carrying out in front of you, chances are you're not going to be as responsive or as engaged in the things that are happening right in front of you. So I think it's a good life lesson that you can take off the stage and into your own life is just being able to say, okay, this didn't go how I planned it and that's okay. I'm going to let it go and not worry about it for now. And I'm just going to keep moving forward. I absolutely agree. And that last part you identified is really important to me in subduing the individual, which is my phrasing. I think on some level in improv, if you let go of the fact that you are an individual, you have your own ideas and your own thoughts on stage, you are so much better at collaboration with other people. And in my opinion, that's a principle that can apply virtually anywhere in your life outside of improvising. And for people that don't improvise, I would urge you to let go of your individuality sometimes because it can hinder you when you 
think that you need to be this rigid, strong person in order to succeed, sometimes you do need to sacrifice or compromise. And I think improv is often all about compromise and recognizing that if it was a one-person show, you would call it stand-up. And there's a reason that it's not stand-up, which is very different from improv. And there's a reason you have one or more partners up on stage with you because it is a collaborative act. And I think that's really important. And as for trying to make it funny, which you brought up, that's another really important impulse that I think is one we should work on restraining in our everyday lives outside of improv because when you worry too much about the product and about the audience's reaction, then you aren't really thinking from a personal standpoint outward. You're trying to take their perspective of you and apply it to how you're behaving. And don't get me wrong, it's important to integrate other perspectives into your life if you think someone has information about you that you aren't considering or they have a vantage point which you aren't aware of. It's great to talk to them and learn what they've learned and benefit from their wisdom, but we live within ourselves for a reason. And I think it's strangely ignorant to deny that fact at times. And I know I said we should subdue the individual at times, but at other points, think as the individual and trust in your instincts and go forward. And the idea of making mistakes is the third thing I want to talk about, because I've improvised with people who say there are no mistakes. There's no wrong decision. And I know that outside of improv, that might be a really controversial idea for some people, but it is a philosophical choice on some level to determine something as a mistake or a bad choice when in reality, it's all part of building the scene and building the world. And especially in improv, when let's take long form, for example, or for the audience, longer scenes that aren't short two, three minute things, they take much longer to draw out to develop characters and relationships. In early scenes, things might not be funny because you are establishing who people are in relationship to one another, what their character traits are. And that isn't always funny. I think in the introduction to a movie, let's say, you're not always going to see the best, most romantic, most horrifying, most spectacular scenes because everything takes exposition and time in the same way that, again, outside of improv, children aren't expected to succeed or accomplish on the same level that adults are because we expect development and growth. That's a huge part of improv for me. I prefer long form because you really do get to see the process evolve over time. And that's been one of my favorite things. So I'd be curious to know if you have a favorite form of improvising. And if so, do you think that translates to your personality and how you behave outside of improv? Yeah, I'm sort of a sucker for the long form improvs myself. That love for long form initially sprung from exactly what you were just talking about. I felt that in the longer forms, I didn't feel the pressure to be funny or pressure to perform a finished product, you know, at your, on your first try. Whereas with the shorter forms of improv, I always felt like you get 30 seconds to make something funny go, you know, and, and it's kind of terrifying. Especially when you are young and you don't have the confidence in yourself to believe that you're going to do it. <laughs> so for longer form improvs, I always felt more of a sense of collaboration like you were talking about just now. I think that's where I finally started to really enjoy improvising because I realized that I'm not the only one out on stage. And if I'm focusing on this is my performance, I have to be funny, that's probably not going to go as well as in the longer forms, I would come out on stage and feel like, okay, well, none of us have any idea what's about to happen. I can take a moment, think, breathe, listen to what other people are saying, and just start spitballing with whatever they're giving me or whatever I'm suggesting. And 
I definitely think that long-form improv, especially practicing long-form improv rather than performing it, gave me the chance to take the performative aspect out of improv and just look at the basics of listening, suggesting, and moving forward with the story and keeping track of the things that have already been established as being true. The basics of story building, which are really at the root of improv, but often get masked by the extensive humor. Once I started getting comfortable with the longer form improvs, I found I was able to transfer a lot of those skills that I was developing with those longer forms into a shorter, snappier version of it, which is what creates comedy. You know, when you take a huge, long development and turn it into 30 seconds of humor gold, that's when I finally started to feel comfortable with improv, I think. Listening as a facet of improv is really important and develops great relationships between actors, which translates to great scenes and great partnerships on stage. And I also think it corrects the way we tend to communicate, I would say, as Americans or maybe Westerners, which isn't always based upon great listening. We Mm -hmm. have stories that we feel are urgent to get out. And so our monologues take precedence or in a conversation, we are waiting for our turn to talk and it's not really great listening. And I think improv helps fight those urges or those cultural values of poor listening and inform us to really pay attention, look at someone's body language. I've always been told, make eye contact because you can see in your partner's eyes what they're thinking about, where they're headed. And on some level, it's a form of human contact that, again, culturally, I don't think we embrace all that much. And I think people tend to be uncomfortable with extended eye contact. And so improv on a lot of levels for me has been about breaking certain habits and trying to reverse things that I think are either unhealthy or unnecessarily imposed by larger systems in which we live. I also want to talk about, because again, listeners might not know, the principle of yes and, and how you think that philosophically informs improv. And of course, outside of improv, I'd like to hear how you think that principle can apply. Sure. So just to establish what that is, because it's sort of a coined term in the theater world that has a definition to anyone who's taken an improv class in their life. Yes, and is a principle where when you are on stage in an improv scene, if your partner makes a suggestion, your job as an improvising actor is to say yes to their suggestion and to add something to it in the hopes of moving the suggestion forward. So if Kip were to come out and start a scene with me and say, you know, mom, make me a PB&J, it would be my job to roll with the fact that I am now playing his mother and then to maybe add something to my character or maybe bring another family member into the situation, something like that. So first of all, I think the yes and principle from improv has actually had more of a direct impact on my life outside of theater than anything else, or at least outside of my own personal acting. I have found that in any kind of collaborative system, whether we're talking about finances or if I am working with other actors and our director says, come up with something for this scene, and suddenly you find yourself in a room full of 16 college girls who all need to (laughs) work together to create something, in any of those scenarios, the most valuable thing for me has been understanding how to speak to other people while I am working with them in some kind of productive environment. I think the 
big problem with things like this is often people take things personally when their ideas are not chosen, or sometimes people don't understand that when they are disagreeing with someone, it sounds very confrontational. It's a very finessed skill to be able to have a conversation with someone that is a dialogue. You know, it's it's a back and forth of, well, I agree with you here, but I disagree with you here. And I think a huge skill that I picked up from the yes and is saying, yes, I like this part of your idea. Here's what I think I would change rather than saying no all the time, which I think has a very negative energy around it. Shooting people down can be very disruptive in a collaborative situation because people don't want to give their opinions after that or they don't feel safe. So I would be interested if you have any anecdotes from outside of theater where you think this sort of thing has been really helpful for you. Definitely. So as a college student and one who doesn't often go to parties or often enjoy the party environment, I've found that it is an important philosophy to adopt in those situations because I enjoy socializing and I think we could always be particular about everything in our lives and say, I like this thing, not quite that, only in these contexts, only in these circumstances and at these times. And at a certain point, you become so picky and so rigidly decisive that you refuse to do anything outside of those zones. And there have been evenings where I've said, maybe I don't really feel like going out, but I should. I can go with my friends and there are positives that I'm not really acknowledging here. And to a degree, after you sit in that discomfort, whatever it is that you don't love or aren't wild about, you will, first of all, learn things about yourself, which is invaluable in life. I think that's one of the best things you can do with your time. And secondly, things in our minds tend to be larger than they actually are in reality. It's not so scary to do that thing. And I think once we recognize how scary anticipation is, both in improv, worrying about making an audience laugh, and in real life, recognizing that most social encounters are held with people who are just as uncertain as you are and who are just as fallible as you are, it helps demystify a lot of the things that tend to scare us. And so in party situations, none that I can recall as specifically as perhaps I should, I've often left feeling a little bit fulfilled and still wary because it's not my environment and I am aware of that. But I've had conversations that stuck with me or I've gotten to see people, if only briefly, that I wouldn't have seen if I'd stayed at home. And I think yes and helps break down comfort zones or expand them, I should say, is a better way of phrasing it. That's invaluable. So to me, that's really important. I also know a number of people who have attended improv performances of mine or talked with me about improv in general and said, I think it's amazing that you do that. I could never do that. And I immediately say, ah, hold on there. A lot of people say that. And I would caution you against saying it too readily because first of all, everything we do is improvised. We never know what's going to happen in the future. You can predict with degrees of certainty what's going to happen and how people are going to behave, but you can't plan a conversation out. You can plan your side of it, and that is flawed because you don't know what the other side is going to be. And if you plan out all of the A and don't know the B, you're going to come across as counterintuitive and sort of out of space and time because you're interacting with things that aren't there. And so I'd be curious to hear if you've had similar reactions from people when they hear that you are theatrically inclined and if they have similar aversions to improv and how you respond to them if those conversations arise. Yeah, absolutely they do. (laughs) Right off the bat, I think of my own mother. She always used to say after a performance of mine in front of a particularly large audience or one filled with a lot of people I knew perhaps, 
she would always say to me, you know, I could never be what you are. I could never get on stage the way you do. I am proud of you and good for you, you know, doing what you love, but I don't think I could ever do it. And I swear if she ever tried, she could because I have never met a woman more inclined to natural performance of joy and hilarity. She's so expressive and I think that's where I get it from. Growing up in a house with the family that I have, this high level of expression is in so many people when you really get them talking about something they're passionate about. And so maybe you've never taken an improv class or maybe you've never gotten on stage in front of people, but if I asked somebody about something that they really loved, I'm sure they could go on and perform an improvised 10-minute monologue about something they absolutely love. And I think people underestimate how impassioned we do get about things that we love to talk about or when we're really enjoying a conversation. And I think if I were to take someone on stage who'd never been on stage and was maybe uncomfortable with the idea and just get them talking about something they loved, that would be enough to ease them into something they otherwise thought they'd never be interested in or be able to do in front of other people. And so just because you don't have the training to say, yes, I feel confident that I have been trained as a good improviser, you know, none of us have that. We all have as many good days improvising as we do bad days. And I think everyone is just as capable of it as anyone else if you're willing to, as you were saying, expand beyond your own comfort zone. I certainly had to push my own comfort zone quite a bit when I first started improvising. I was quite afraid of it. And it wasn't until I was put into a situation where I needed to be improvising every single day, just as a cast member of a play that I was a part of, that sort of forced practice, which terrified me at first, eventually sort of made me numb to all of the things that I was afraid of about improv. You know, if you're doing it every day, you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. and you just have to learn how to take both and find what's useful from a good day and what's useful from a bad day. I certainly think that anybody with the strength to say, today was not my best day, but I'm going to try again, could easily be an improviser. Right. And I think that's, again, an important value to bring into your life, that you will have bad days, bad experiences, but not to allow them to dominate your perspective or your outlook going forward. I think is invaluable. Another thing I want to talk about in relation to improv that I'm often fascinated with, there are friends of mine at school who are international students and the jokes or the bits that we find funny in our scenes don't always appeal to them or don't always resonate. And I want to know to what extent you think improv is culturally based. Do the jokes, do these situations have to be related to, let's say, American culture? Or do you think there are certain scenes or scenarios, whether it be long form or short form, that are universally funny, universally peculiar in a way that would resonate with various audiences around the globe? That's quite interesting. I never thought of that. I mean, it makes sense to me that some things would be universally funny while some things would be more locally humorous. Um, I think what makes people laugh at improv is being able to relate to what is happening on stage. I certainly think scenes revolving around relationships like familial relationships or romantic relationships, those are probably going to be universally funny because everybody can relate to, oh, my mom is like that or my sister is like that or, oh my God, I hate it when boys 
do this on dates, you know, those are certainly things that everybody has some kind of experience with, those types of relationships. On the other hand, I could certainly see how, especially with international cultures, how things could be funny to one culture, but maybe not to another. Things that are particularly capitalist, maybe, or I could at least speak to different tastes of humor as well. I know that sarcasm is quite rampant in certain areas, while other areas find it offensive. I couldn't necessarily speak to what culture maybe would think sarcasm is funny while another may not. It may be universal. I'm not traveled enough to know. From family to family and neighborhood to neighborhood, I have noticed, depending on which of my friends grew up where, they may find a joke that I think is maybe a little offensive, but maybe a little funny. They may find it entirely offensive. Or I may find, you know, a political cartoon that is meant to be funny but poignant. They may think it's only poignant and not see the humor. They may think it's borderline offensive. And so I think it's definitely a conversation worth having with people, especially people who are your friends, trying to understand, you know, where is your line for what is considered funny and where is my line and how can I accommodate yours? Because I certainly wouldn't want to offend anybody with my humor, but I do know that I probably do because my personal humor tends to be sharper than some of my friends. And I have in the past had to sit down with certain people and say, listen, I certainly meant no offense by that comment. I see that it struck a nerve and I apologize for that, but that's built into my nature. So I, from then on, have to sort of dance around that. And I think that aspect of being a comedian or being an improviser again, because I'll try and bring it back to that, I find is essential to confidence, but perhaps that's not the word I want to use. I'm trying to describe the belief that if you keep pressing forward and keep moving on, you will eventually find your path or in a scene, let's say your character. And I think on some level, improv and life have beautiful parallel there in that we don't know what's coming up ahead. We often know what's expected of us, but we aren't necessarily given clear guidelines for how to accomplish that. And I think improv, much like life, offers for beautiful creativity. If people are flexible and try different options, there are improv scenes that take place in spaceships. There are also improv scenes that take place in closets. And both can be tremendously funny if the right actors and the right things get said, but also if people enjoy it. That's one of my favorite things about improv, that if you are really having a good time on stage, the audience appreciates that. And I feel that there is, perhaps more so than in other art forms, a very intimate relationship between the improviser and the audience, especially when audience members might suggest ideas that spur improv scenes or offer suggestions that help guide the improvisers on stage. There's a beautiful relationship there. And like you said, the relatability is huge. And I think that improv in being created live is, if nothing else, a fascinating process to witness and to watch. And I'd be curious to know first from you how it feels to create improv, what it feels like to be on stage. I feel very much like I have a personal relationship with the audience, not only myself, but also my partners and whoever else is in the troupe who's on stage. I think there's a strong relationship between the audience and the performer in improv that you get to some extent in scripted theater, but it's not quite the same because as you were just saying, the audience gets to actually participate in this type of theater in a lot of forms. They get to give suggestions, certainly, which is a huge 
huge source of participation, but I think the audience also underestimates how much power their own laughter has on the troupe performing. I think as an improviser, it's a very special thing that you get to read the audience and allow the audience to weigh in on what's happening on stage, which you obviously don't get with a scripted piece because whatever is scripted is going to happen, whether they like it or not. And I think the audience underestimates how much power they have in the situation just as energy feeders to the troupe. You know, I think... As an improviser, obviously you have to listen to your partners, but you are getting loads of information from the audience, what they find funny, what they don't, and just how they're feeling about what is being performed is tangible. And I certainly think that's specific to improv. Have you ever had an incident where the audience has quite directly influenced what happened next in a scene? Absolutely. Some of my memories are of more crude scenes, so I won't describe what they were, but audience members that have laughed at certain things we either didn't anticipate as improvisers, I won't call it a mistake, but things that were missaid or spoken rashly that the audience found hilarious and we end up coming back to. And of course, a great aspect of improv is listening to what the audience laughed at and bringing it back in later scenes. Again, to bring it back to philosophy, I think is a really empowering idea. We often think that our creations or our projects are so self-contained. And if we do something in this place or at this school with this person, it's really only going to have a small ripple or a small effect. And improv is testament to the fact that that's not true. Often you'll have a great scene that other actors and other scenes will refer to or will base characters off of. And similarly, I think we should all live our lives knowing that you can make great things, whether it's art or something else, that resonate with people on a profound human level. I think some of the best literature that's been written has stayed with us for hundreds, if not thousands of years for reasons like that, because it is great and it has gone on to inspire things. I mean, the fact that we have sequels <laughs> in anything is a clear indication of the fact that people are great at building upon good ideas. And at times, excessively so, I would point to the Fast and Furious franchise and say, maybe that's too many sequels. But people should also remember that what they create, whether it's artistic or not, can influence well beyond the scope they initially intended. And that's one reason to create, whether it be in improvisation or otherwise. In my improv troupe at school, we've often talked about how essential it is to trust those on stage and to get to know improvisers off stage and know who they are as people so that you can trust them on stage, but also to make the scene about your partner, set them up to succeed. And I want to hear what you think about that principle, because I know a lot of people who have hesitated, worrying, well, if I support my partner, are they going to support me equally? Is it going to be balanced? And I'd love to hear, first of all, if that idea has been one you've heard frequently and what your take is there. Certainly. In my acting classes at school, that's a constant, constant note that we are given. In improv in particular, I think it is necessary. I think you can't live without it. In a scripted play, sometimes you can get away with not supporting your partner and trying to make it about yourself, but I can promise you right now your scene will not be as strong as it could be if you were going out on stage with the intention of listening to and helping your partner. But in improv in particular, it's the best key to a good scene. I think if you go out on stage and you're worrying about your own performance and you're watching yourself perform 
perform rather than just performing, you're going to be blocking impulses. You're not going to be listening to your partner very well. You may miss a suggestion that they have. You may not be at your best creativity level to be giving suggestions because you're monitoring your own work. And the trick to getting rid of all of those outside thoughts that we have when we're looking in at ourselves is to look at our partner and to pay attention to exactly what they're doing with their hand or to look in their eyes and see what they're thinking but not saying. And by getting our attention off of ourselves, we are able to free all of those parts of ourselves that we would otherwise be hindering. So I think with improv in particular, where you have no idea what the next thing you're going to say is, you're not going to find your next line by looking at yourself. You're going to find it by looking at your partner and saying, oh, why are you holding your leg like that? Did you hurt it? Or if they're twirling their hair, maybe you'll notice that. Or if they look upset, you may say something. And so I definitely think in improv, you really can't get away with not supporting your partner. And I I certainly want to touch on what you were saying about trusting your partner, because I think people often take that to mean you have to be best friends with your partner. And that's not the same thing. You can go out on stage with someone who you barely know. And if you are supporting them and they are supporting you, then you're good scene partners. There have certainly been times where I have not been particularly close with the person who I was starting a scene with. You know, sometimes in in high school or in college, you're you're just doing whoever is next in line on either side of the room, you're scene partners. And maybe it's not your best friend standing across from you. Maybe it's just someone you've had one math class with. And if you go out there and you're paying attention to yourself and not to them, they're going to feel neglected. You're probably not getting the support you need either. You're going to feel neglected and you're going to end up with a very fractured scene where you're not really listening. Whereas if you walk out there and your intention is to pay attention to your partner, to listen to them and to give them any help that they can possibly have and you're getting that from your partner as well, you will succeed. I absolutely agree. And I think improv and life are based upon universal understandings, maybe not universal languages, but the reason you can work with someone who isn't necessarily your best friend is because you understand how to improvise. And I would contend similarly, most people, if they don't overthink it, understand how to live. And I think that's a beautiful crossroads between the two. One final thing that I'd love to talk about with you is that improv I find to be particularly beautiful because it is a natural and familiar chaos. I think in childhood, we know how to play around. We know how to make up things that don't make sense and throw out ideas and words that aren't even real. And as children, we don't question it. We play pretend with other people so readily. We call other people our friends so readily. And I'm not going to get into the grim circumstance that is adulthood, but I think as an improviser, you do rediscover some of that childlike wonder, which is so fascinating. And I say chaos because you don't know what's coming. There is no real order to an improv scene. You can impose order to a show and say, we're going to have this many scenes and they should follow this format. But otherwise, you relinquish control. And it's something I think we could all do a bit more outside of improv. But would you speak to that principle at all? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's actually one of my favorite things about my own life. It's something I take pride in is my love and the love that my friends have for giving up that control and just saying whatever happens, happens, and we're going to have fun no matter what comes out of this. I often find, you know, my boyfriend is an engineer and we were walking down the street 
last week and someone was walking towards us and we were walking from my house, which is in a neighborhood full of people who I know very well from my department. And so I assumed I knew this person. So I waved and called out and it was dark and they get close enough and I had no idea who this person was. But I struck up conversation anyway because I had made contact and finally we're walking away a few minutes later and Anthony leans over to me and he says, how did you know that person? And I said, I didn't. And he was flabbergasted, you know, that it's so silly how we'll be walking down a hallway and someone else is coming from the other direction and they won't even make eye contact with you. It's like you're walking down two completely separate hallways. And I think people underestimate how easy it is just to look at someone in the eye and say hello and go from there. And that's all you have to do on stage. It's it's a simple transfer between stage and life in that sense that no, you don't know who that person is or where they come from or anything about them but you're never going to know if you don't look at them if you don't look in their eye if you don't say hello that's the start of everything and i think it's something that people could use more of in their lives especially you know i could go for miles about how internal people have become with technology staring at their phone on the bus instead of looking out the window or instead of talking to the person you're sitting next to depending on the person uh, and the bus. But I certainly think it's something that people could use more of in their life is just that simple concept of opening a conversation with the person in front of them. Definitely. And as we said earlier, there will be conversations that don't turn out as you expect. There will be people who close the door that you've just opened. But to improvise, to live is on some level to be brave, to keep trying, to keep offering, which is a term we use in improv a lot. You make offers repeatedly. I would say something I do often, which I should work on both in improvising and life, is over-offering. And I don't have confidence in my first offer. So when I see that someone didn't quite understand it, instead of explaining that offer, I offer something else and keep going and essentially branch out rather than build up. And I think that's something I know, again, I could work on philosophically is build on an idea and explain it to someone rather than abandoning it and foregoing focus altogether. So to conclude, are there things you'd like our audience to think about or consider after listening to this conversation? Certainly. I think the best way to practice improv is just by talking to people, especially talking to people who scare you to talk to. You know, go and talk to a professor who you've always admired but have never gotten the courage to visit during office hours. Or something you told me once, Kip, is a teacher that you don't even have but you've heard wonderful things about. You know, going and asking them to get a cup of coffee with you. I have found certainly that talking to people who I am somewhat intimidated by, it's the best improv training there is is just having a conversation with someone who you consider very respectable and someone who you maybe consider you superior even. I think that's the best way to start scaring yourself a little bit, to start pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone because you improv with your friends every day. But if you can convince yourself to talk to that professor who you're maybe a little scared of or convince yourself to talk to a stranger on the bus next to you or go up to that person at the bar who you think is really cute and maybe wouldn't normally go talk to, those small little instances of pushing yourself socially outside of your comfort zone, I think are a huge step when you transfer it over to improv. The idea of, you know, going out on stage can be very scary, but if you start small with a one-person audience who maybe scares you a little and you build up a little bit, I think it's a very good doorway into performing. 
I'm on the same page with you. I also think people should, in general, worry less about the product in their lives and focus more on the process. Your life is short. You should make the most of every day, of every week, and little experiences. Don't worry about pleasing too many people. Don't worry about making an audience laugh, which is not to say ignore others around you or be rude or not compassionate in any way. But I genuinely think when you focus on yourself and enjoy whatever you're doing and following, to some extent, your impulses, your creative impulses especially, you will end up just as a byproduct making other people happy or inspiring them in some way and making their lives more fulfilling if you focus on yourself in the right way. And of course, as we've said various times, be collaborative and work with others and be willing to put away some of your own ideas and preconceptions because that doesn't mean you lack confidence or that you lack principles. It just means that you are a good listener and someone who's great to work with. So Kay, thank you very much for coming on. It was great to have you. Thank you for having me. And we'd love to have you back. Of course, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. If you have any comments, thoughts, or ideas you would like to share with us, we would love to hear them. That's what we want. So you can reach out to us on Twitter or on Facebook, where if you like our page, you will get weekly updates when we post episodes or other material. You can also email us via stridensaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and reviewing the show. It helps us a lot and we'd very much appreciate it. And as always, thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.